Well, as we turn now to the study of God's Word, I would encourage you to turn to Philippians, Philippians 1, for the second part of our study, To Live is Christ. To Live is Christ. One of the things we all love about Hope Bible Church is our common commitment to the Word of God. Pastor Leek, for 24 years, established this as the central DNA of our church, a love for the Word of God. It's why I'm here, it's why you're here. One of the questions we ask at the end of every membership interview is, why do you want to join Hope Bible Church? And the most consistent answer we get is some version of having relationship to a love for the Word of God, a desire to learn and to grow. We don't come here to have our emotions manipulated by sights and sounds. We don't come here to feel better about ourselves. We don't come here to become the best version of ourselves. We come to hear from God through His Word and to be changed by it. And whenever we come humbly to receive His Word, His Spirit does His work in our hearts. And there's hardly a more life-shaping truth than the study that we're currently in. And so may the, help, may the Spirit help each one of us as we hear, understand, believe, and to be conformed to the image of Christ. I guess I should turn to Philippians also. <laughs> so if you're there in Philippians 1, follow along as I read verses 18 to 26. At the end of verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ." And to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul's reaction to his circumstances here is contrary to every inclination of the human heart. We might expect Paul to be angry uh, at the fact that he's stuck in house arrest, Maybe if we were in Paul's position, we would be uh, bitter toward the Jews whose false accusations have landed him in this position, being in jail for three years. We wouldn't fault him if he was frustrated that he, the apostle to the Gentiles, isn't out there preaching the gospel and starting churches. But Paul is none of those things. He's not angry, he's not bitter, he's not frustrated. Scripture teaches that the human heart has a default setting at the moment of conception. And this setting is defined in Genesis chapter 8, which we just read a moment ago, verse 21. It said, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
And the word intent there means inclination. Mankind is bent toward evil. It's, it's what we do. Embedded in the soul of every cute, harmless baby is the capacity to destroy lives through acts of evil. Now, when I say that, our thoughts and our minds often rush to define evil in its, in its worst possible way, in sinister ways, and so it's difficult to see how baby and evil could coexist in the same sentence. But mankind's inclination to evil doesn't mean that we're bent toward malevolence and vile wickedness, though that's not off the table. Rather, our inclination to evil at its root means that by default we operate according to self-rule. We live for ourselves, and that is evil. In the beginning, we were created to worship and to serve God. But at the fall, the parents of our race cast God off His throne in their lives, and we then have been born into this world thinking we have a birthright to the throne of our hearts. If, if we know anything about life, it's that we are the masters of our fate. We are the, the captain of our souls. We, we know what we want out of life, and we're going to go after it. Knowingly or ignorantly, we set aside our Creator and what He made us for, and we live every day trying to satisfy our own hearts. The problem is, people and circumstances keep getting in the way. Our parents don't let us do anything we want. Our bosses force us to fulfill responsibilities we'd rather not do. Our teachers give us bad grades when the homework doesn't get turned in. Society doesn't just hand us success on a platter. And so every day we experience varying degrees of depression or anger or envy because we just can't get what we want. How many times have I heard, I just want an easy life. I just want a happy marriage. I just want stuff. This is why it's surprising to some that Paul isn't angry or bitter or frustrated. And why isn't he? Because he's a Christian. And as one who is saved by Christ, he has died to himself, and now he lives for Christ. The fact that Paul doesn't respond the way we often respond to our unmet expectations or injustices or wrongs committed against us makes us realize that his fundamental view of life is, is different than what we tend to have. And so, before we study this text and understand what is going on in Paul's heart as he's, he's wrestling between these two positions of either dying to be with Christ or continuing to live on, we have to do a deep dive on what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. What is this framework of thinking about life that is driving Paul's thinking? So last time we started laying down the foundation stones of what it means to live as Christ. These are, as I said last time, the, the basics, the, the foundation of Christian living. And we started with the cornerstone. 
the, the most significant reality that sets the course and trajectory for all of life, and that is this. To live as Christ means to live for His glory. To live as Christ means to live for His glory. That is our goal in life. And we saw last time that to, to li- living for God, Christ's glory means to reflect back to God that He is glorious, that He is worthy of worship, and that He is worthy of imitation, that we both affirm it with our, our voices as we do when we sing, and we also affirm it by our actions and how we live in obedience to Him. And then also to live for the glory of Christ means to reflect back to others that as we're glorifying God, other people are watching us and they're seeing what kind of God we serve, that He is indeed worthy to be worshipped and imitated. We live to, to exalt Him and not ourselves. As John the Baptizer said, He must increase, but we must decrease. This is our goal. This is our fundamental disposition in life that we don't live to make ourselves look great, rather we live to show the world His greatness. So last time I went into a lengthy explanation of what this means, and one of the things I mentioned is that when we live for the glory of Christ, we're cooperating with God, we're coming alongside Him and living for the same purpose for which He does all things. And I want to emphasize that a little bit more this morning just to show you how significant it is that we live for His glory. In making that point, last time we camped out in the New Testament, but today I want to briefly highlight from the Old Testament the significance of this truth. You see, there is nothing God is more committed to than His glory. And there is nothing God (coughs) hates more than than when His glory is diminished in the sight of His creatures. And so that being the case, there should be nothing more that we are committed to than His glory, and there is nothing that we should hate more than that His glory is diminished in the world. Psalm 24 verse 10 asks and answers the question, who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And as the King of glory, it is only right that His creation Declare His glory. You're familiar with Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and their expanse are declaring the works of His hands. So you look at the blue sky, you look at the sunsets and the sunrises, you look at the storms, and then at night you, you see the stars and the celestial beings, and they are all proclaiming the glory of the Lord. Not only does His creation proclaim His glory, but as His creatures, we are called upon to do so as well. Psalm 29 resounds, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Now, we don't add to God's glory, but we ascribe to Him the glory that He already has in Himself. His glory, by the way, is the the collective brilliance of His nature and His work. Glory is the word that we use to summarize the, the magnificent refractions of beauty and goodness of all that God is and all that God does. And so Psalm 86 says, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
All the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. After all, the Lord did to rescue Israel out of Egypt and miraculously sustain them in the wilderness for 40 years, Deuteronomy 4 says, Know therefore and take it to heart today that the Lord, He is God in heaven, and, uh, on, in heaven above and on earth below. There is none other. And then centuries later, when the Lord had cast Israel out of the land because of their idolatry, and sent them as exiles to foreign nations, the Lord says in Isaiah 46, Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry, out, who carry about their wooden idols and, and pray for to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none other. So you get the picture here? God is glorious and there is no one like Him. And because there is no one like him, he is rightfully jealous that no one else gets the glory that he alone deserves. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's not only jealous that he alone received the glory he is due, but he is also jealous that no one be mistaken about who he is. In Ezekiel 36.20, the Lord says, when, when Israel came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of His land. The Lord says, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. In other words, Israel had been cast out of the land, they were judged by the Lord, and the nations looked at that, and they came to the conclusion that their God, Israel's God, must not be all that powerful because he couldn't keep his people in their land. So because God is jealous for his glory and to be rightly known, the Lord goes on to say there in Ezekiel 36 to make the new covenant promises of salvation and restoration to vindicate His glory. The Lord says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So what are those covenant promises that God makes to Israel to vindicate His holy name? He says this, for I will take you from the nations and, and gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land. That, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, moreover I will give you a new heart and I, I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey 
my ordinances. Now, the national promises, the land promises still apply to Israel, but the spiritual promises of forgiveness and cleansing and a new heart and a new spirit that empowers obedience, those are what we as Gentiles, those of us who are Gentiles, experience in salvation and sanctification. So those new covenant promises of salvation is the new life promised in the new covenant that Jesus ratified with his own blood at the cross. So to bring this full circle, God is utterly committed to his glory, to being exclusively worshipped as the true God. A God who, in addition to being just and forgiving and mighty and wise, is also a savior. And so to put himself on display for everyone to see, he, dis- he accomplished salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. And it's not just salvation from his wrath that he accomplished, but it's also the display of his glory is seen in causing those whom he saves to live according to his holy character. Therefore, when you and I live for the glory of Christ, when we accurately portray to others who Christ is, we bring glory to him. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said on the night before he died in John 13, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Now that can sound confusing, but here's what Jesus is saying there. What Jesus is about to do, his suffering and death on the cross and the resurrection, what he is about to do is to put himself on display as the Lamb of God for everyone to see, and that will bring glory to him. His, his acts of sacrificial death and his demonstration of love, that glorifies Christ and the Father because he is displaying to everyone what the Father is like, that the Father is a Savior. And as a result of glorifying the Father and showing the world what He is like, the Father says, because you've glorified me, I will glorify you. I will bestow glory on you, which He did by rising Him from the dead. So when we live like Christ and we put the character of Christ on display for others to see, like Him, we are glorifying God. And when we glorify God, we are fulfilling the very purpose for which we were created and the end of which we were saved. That the world might know that we serve a great God. So to live as Christ means to live for His glory. To live for His glory. Now the second foundation stone we saw last time is that to live as Christ also means to live controlled by his love. It refers to our motivation to live controlled by his love. I won't spend as much time expanding this point, but I do want to affirm again that even though we looked at the New Testament last time, we could do the same thing from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see the the greatest expression of the love of God in the person of Christ at the cross as he died for sinners, paid for our sin, and secured our eternal life. But the Old Testament saints didn't have that. They did not know the extent to which God would go in demonstrating his love for his people. But they were convinced of his, none, of, of his love nonetheless. We could go anywhere in the Old Testament to see his love on display, but for the sake of time, I just want to highlight how the Psalms, 
the book of the prayers of God's people emphasize the loving kindness of the Lord. For example, in those moments when David was under attack and, and he was crying out to the Lord, appealing to him, he did it on the basis of the love of the Lord. Psalm 6.4 says, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. And even in those moments when David felt abandoned by God as if God was not paying attention to him and, and he was helpless, still he says in Psalm 13 verse 5, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David was one who had sinned grievously against the Lord. And in his prayer of repentance, he had hope that overcame his sorrow. And he said, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Psalm 32 verse 10. And then again in repentance, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. In Psalm 118, which is a, a psalm of thanksgiving, there's a fourfold call to extol the loving kindness of the Lord. And, and you're familiar with Psalm 136, which is the history of Israel, but every other line gives a theological explanation of why these things took place. And it's that line that says, for the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. So time and time again, in psalms of praise, in psalms of thanksgiving, in psalms of prayer for deliverance, in psalms of, of repentance, the attribute that propels David and the other psalmists forward in life is the love of God. And so we who have the clearest expression and the highest expression of the love of God in the person of Christ, we too should be motivated and controlled by the love of God. For those who are in Christ, there is never a reason to doubt His love or to fear that His, His love might be removed from us. We have been loved supremely, and it is His demonstration of love at the cross that secures us forever. And so his love becomes for us an undiminishing source of power for us as we live for him. So to live as Christ means to be controlled by his love. To be controlled by his love. A third foundation stone then of what it means to live for Christ refers to our identity. It refers to our identity. To live as Christ means to live being defined by Him. To live being defined by Him. You know, your identity is the most significant thing about you. Without an identity, you are nothing and can do nothing. You can't even introduce yourself to another person if you don't have an identity. And so who or what you perceive yourself to be will determine everything else about you. Our society believes that you can choose whatever uh, identity you want. Whatever you feel to be true about yourself, you can just declare that to be your identity. But it doesn't have to be what you feel. There can also be objective factors 
uh, that, that, I, that uh, you rely on for your identity. Perhaps the most common way of identifying ourselves in society today relates to our ethnic background, that the most significant thing about you, it is said, is what slice of the human race you belong to. Or another common identity that we might hang on to is our identity in social circles, whether we're a husband or a wife or a parent or a friend. Our job is another source of our identity. We can hardly think of who we are apart from what we do to earn a paycheck. Sometimes we find our identity in something that has happened to us, that we are a survivor of some traumatic event, and that drives how we think about life. Or for others, your own past sin is what determines your identity. Once an addict, or alcoholic, or murderer, always fill in the blank. There are many ways we can define ourselves, and not all of them are bad to the, insofar as they reflect aspects of our lives in their proper context. But for the believer, the identity that is most true about you, and it should be the primary filter through which you, you think of yourself, is not derived from your DNA or your life experience. Rather, it is an identity that is given to you as a result of what Christ has done. If you're there in Philippians, just turn back a few pages uh, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. This is a verse maybe you've memorized at some point in your life. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The context of this powerful statement is that moment when Paul strongly rebuked the apostle Peter. You see, Peter, uh, when no one else was looking, acted like a Christian. He ate with the Gentiles. But when, when people of consequence, people he was trying to impress, came around, namely Jews from Jerusalem, Peter backed off from the Gentiles. And so Paul rebuked Peter for that hypocrisy. And in Paul's point there in verse 20 of chapter 2, Paul is saying that those who are justified in Christ don't get to choose your identity, whether you're Jew or Gentile. If you are in Christ, then Christ is in you and He is your identity. Though this is filled with mystery, once you are placed in Christ, His life is your life. Paul says in Colossians, Christ who is your life. It's not that other things that are true about you are erased but rather they are superseded in significance to this reality. This is why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ. And he's saying there that true unity in the church is not based on external commonalities, but rather in our common union with Christ. 
And so whatever else is true about us, whether we're male, female, slave, or free, or Jew, or Greek, whatever else is true, all of those identities fade into the background and our position in Christ becomes our governing identity. Now, at this point, we could spin off easily into another sermon series looking at the identity that is ours in Christ and how it should impact our life, but we're not going to do that. But I do want to just walk through quickly a few of them from Scripture, and you can pursue this on your own. In fact, if you promise to read it, and you do want to study this on your own, you can come, after, come up to me after the service, and I will give you a book named, or titled Just, excuse me, Who Am I? by Jerry Bridges. Limited time offer until supplies last. (laughs) But feel free to come up. All right, one of your identities. Who are you? You are justified. You are justified. This is a critical identity for us to embrace. Because until Christ saved us, our identity is that we were guilty. We stood guilty before a holy God, and the verdict of guilt before Him was upon us, and we were destined for eternal punishment in hell. But at the cross, God gladly accepted the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, who who was our substitute. And in accepting that sacrifice, He placed you and I, all of those who would believe in Christ, And when we believe that Christ is the only one through whom we can be saved from the wrath of God, the Father looks at us and declares righteous. He counts our sin as having been paid for. And God no longer counts it against us. And further, He imputes into us the righteousness of Christ. Romans 3, 24, uh, 23 and 24 say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean that we are justified? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So we were guilty But now we are righteous in Christ. And so to be justified means to be declared righteous. And so what this means is that if you are justified in Christ, you can stop trying to earn your favor from God. You don't have to work to try to turn God's frown into a smile when He looks at you. You're no longer under punishment and condemnation. In Christ, you are washed and cleansed from all of your sin, and the Father delights in you because you are in His Son. You cannot add to the treasury of favor that Christ has already accumulated for you. Because of Christ's work on your behalf and the Father's declaration of righteousness, you are secure You can never be taken out of the Father's hand, and He will never reject you. John Bunyan wrote these beautiful words, But I am a great sinner, save you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, says you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. 
but I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my life, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. I have sinned against mercy. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. Once you are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ through faith in Him, you are justified. There is no more guilt and no more shame and no more fear of punishment. You are free from condemnation and you can walk around living in that freedom without ever looking over your shoulder thinking that maybe God's judgment might track you down. You are justified. Another way that Christ defines us is that you are a new creation. You are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This speaks to the reality that though we were born in sin, we have been born again. Or in the words of Romans 6.4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we are no longer bound to sin as we once were. We no longer crave the things that we once did. We, we are no longer powerless in the face of temptation or hopeless in the face of trials. For those who struggled with addictions, it is not true of you that once an addict, always an addict. In Christ, you are a new creation. For those who were liars and thieves and murderers, that may be what you did, but that is not who you are. You are a new creation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You are a new creature, a new creation. Another way that God defines us, that Christ defines us, is that you are a child of God by virtue of adoption. You are a child of God by virtue of adoption. We were born into this world as children of wrath, sons of the devil. We worked in the family business of lying and murdering, even if it was just in our heart. But when God saves us, He, he adopts us into His family, making us sons and daughters of the King of Kings, and a joint heir with Christ. You know, some of us have been blessed to have imperfect but Christ-loving parents. For others, thinking about family just brings up thoughts of sorrow and grief, even anger or bitterness. Some of us have known only love and acceptance from our families. And some have known only trauma and abuse. But no matter what your earthly family is like, you are a child of God. 
And you have been placed into the church where, where you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who love you. And because we are children of God, we, we get to look to our Heavenly Father and imitate Him. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We are the beloved children of God. And so we can look to our Father and imitate His grace his compassion, his mercy, his kindness and justice and forgiveness and all of his attributes. We can exhibit those things because of whose we are. We are his children. Yet another way that Christ defines you is that you are a saint. You are a saint. This means that you have been set apart, specially reserved for God. Before you were justified, before you were a new creation, before you were adopted into God's family, you and I were far from God. Colossians 1.21 says you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds. We were not just strangers to God, ignorant of Him. No, at some level we knew there was a God, but we rejected Him. And we lived in direct opposition to his law that was written on our heart. And we wanted nothing to do with him. But Paul goes on to say there in Colossians 1, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We didn't reconcile ourselves to God. He reconciled us to himself. He brought us near. Why? To make us holy. That's what it means to, to be a saint. Holy and saint is the same word in the Greek. Hagios, it, it means to be set apart. Earlier in Colossians 1, Paul wrote, For he, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. God set us apart from the kingdom of darkness and he set us apart to the kingdom of of his beloved son. He has brought us near to himself. So you and I are no longer part of this world, excuse me, we no longer belong to this world of unbelievers. You belong to a different class of people, the saints of God, those who are part of the kingdom of God. Your closest affinities are not those who share your ethnicity, nor those who are your immediate family, nor are they your political allies or anything else. No, your closest affinities are the saints who sit around you today. And being part of the people of God also means that we have the joy of participating in the mission of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, God reconciled us to, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against us, against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So now that, that we are saints, now that we've been specially reserved for God, the purpose for which he's reserved us is to proclaim this gospel of reconciliation to the world. So beloved, you are justified, you are a new creation, you're adopted, you're a saint, and we'll add finally, you are a slave to God. Who am I? I am a slave 
to God. Now, this might not sound very exciting at first, but when you realize the alternative to being a slave to God is that you are a slave to your passions and desires, this is a glorious reality. Titus 3.3 says, We were once enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We had cravings and desires that we just felt compelled to pursue, even though they wreaked havoc in our lives. We used people to get what we want. And when they stopped being useful to us, we mistreated them. The internal GPS directing us in life was calculated, or I should say calibrated, to get as many of our desires as we could with the least amount of consequences. And so behind us was a trail of broken relationships and wasted resources, and we were weighed down with guilt and shame and anger and disappointment. This is why divorce is so common in society. This is why at least one in five people are medicated for anxiety and depression. It's why immorality is rampant because no one can find satisfaction to their desires, but they're enslaved to keep pursuing them. But in Christ, you have been purchased by Christ and we have become slaves to God. We're no longer slaves to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's exactly what Christ does. We are now free to function in ways that produce the fruit of joy and love and peace in our hearts. And we're now able to exhibit the fruit of kindness and patience and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. God owns us. And as the good and merciful master that he is, he, he teaches us a whole new way to live in his kingdom. A way that not just increases our own joy, but also that glorifies him. So friends, to live as Christ means to be defined by him. It's, it's to know that because of your union with Christ, you are justified. That you're a new creation. That you're adopted into the family of God with all the privileges that come with that. That we're saints set apart for the purposes of God from the world. And that we are slaves to God, freed to serve Him and enjoy all the benefits of His loving rule over our lives. These identities ground us. They, they secure us. You never have to question who you are. Who you're related to. What your purpose is. What your future entails. Or how to think about your past. All of that is determined by your identity in Christ. So to live as Christ means to live for His glory, to live controlled by His love, and to live being defined by Him. Fourth, to live as Christ means to live empowered by Him. The fourth foundation stone of, of to live as Christ means to live 
empowered by him. We've looked at our goal, our motivation, our identity, and this foundation stone re- refers to our source of strength, our power, and we are empowered by him. If you're there in Galatians, go back to Philippians and look at chapter 3, Philippians 3, verse 10. Of course, we'll look at this section in more detail at some point, but here's what Paul says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In saying that Paul wants to know the power of his resurrection, Paul is not saying that he hopes to be raised from the dead someday. No, that's verse 11 where he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here in verse 10, Paul is talking about living with supernatural power to fulfill the purposes of God in this life. The Christian life requires supernatural strength. What God calls us to cannot be done by our own natural fortitude. It's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Why? Because we can't imitate God and live moral and righteous lives. Uh, Wives can't submit to their husbands and husbands can't love their wives and children can't obey their parents or parents parent their, their children. Slaves can't submit to their masters and masters can't rule over their slaves. All of those things which are commanded in Ephesians 5 and 6 cannot be done to God's standard on our own with our own strength. We need the power of God to flow through us to empower us to live as the people of God. So when we say to live is Christ, One of the facets of what we're talking about is what powers us, what energizes us, and that is the power of Christ. And this is a power that is available to us. Paul prays in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling, of his calling, what what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Listen, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us? Who believe. Those are in accordance with the working of his strength, of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age and in the age to come. What he is saying there is that the same power that rose Christ from the dead and seated him above all else is the same power that worked in you when God raised you from spiritual death and darkness, and it also energizes us to move through every day as we live for him. Now, how do we access that power? What mechanism exists where we can tap into his power? Well, Paul tells us here right in Philippians 3.10. Look at it again. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That phrase, being conformed to his death, explains how we experience the power of the resurrection. So the way to tap into the power of the resurrection 
is to be conformed to the death of Christ. To experience power to live, we have to die. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must pick up his cross and follow me. He said, if anyone wants to save his life, he must lose his life. So Paul is only saying exactly what Jesus said. But how does this work? How does dying like Christ give us access to resurrection power? Well, think of it this way. The power of Christ is not something outside of you that you need to plug into to receive. Rather, by virtue of your union with Christ in his death and resurrection, and because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, the power of Christ already dwells inside of you. The reason we may not feel it is because we're still committed to living for ourselves. Like the rich young ruler who refused eternal life because he had possessions he was unwilling to let go of, we can't experience the power of God when we're unwilling to let go of our own desires and priorities and commitments. In a sense, our hands are full of the things that we want, the idols of our heart, and so we don't have space to pick up the tool of God's power. And so if we would just let go of our own desires, let go of what we think is important, let go of our perspective and our reputation, if we would drop what we're grasping, we would be able to pick up His power. A buoy tied to a sinking ship doesn't need external power to rise to the surface. It just needs to be cut off from what it's dragging it down, and it'll shoot up on its own. And so the reason we lack the power to overcome our anger is because we're unwilling to let go of our unmet desires and expectations. The reason we lack the power to overcome bitterness is because we're unwilling to let go of the hurt and the desire for vengeance. The reason we lack the power to sacrificially love others is because we're unwilling to let go of what we think we deserve. So wherever you feel like you lack the power to live for Christ, you will find something you're holding on to. The desires of the flesh, the the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life have wrapped around that part of your heart in some way. But the moment you cut that off and you let go of your desires and expectations, the moment you recognize you deserve nothing but eternal hell and vengeance is the Lord, the moment you realize that Christ, in Christ you have everything you need and there is nothing worth holding on to if it keeps you from experiencing more of Him, that's when you find freedom and power. When a person dies... All of their attachments to this world are cut off. No one owes him anything. Her former dreams are pointless. The desires are a moot point. Their former possessions no longer belong to them. And so it is for we who have died in Christ Nothing in this world matters 
except living for Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 6, for we, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, he says, in the same way, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When we fix in our mind that we have died with Christ, we will exhibit humility because we know that we are sinners saved by grace and we have nothing to boast in except the cross of Christ. When we consider ourselves dead to our former desires, we can be patient with others because having eternal life, we're on God's timetable, not ours. When we are dead to sin and alive to God, we can love others sacrificially because ultimately we don't own anything anyway, so we can sacrifice anything for the benefit of others. We can have victory over temptations to immorality or substances or money or ungodly success because our joy in Christ is not worth sacrificing for temporal pleasures. You know, I've seen people move from stubbornness and pride with a wake of destruction behind them to become humble, loving, gentle people. And the explanation is always the same. They died. And they found that as soon as they let go of what they were holding on to for dear life, their souls just soared and they found peace and joy and reconciliation. Are you struggling to let go of something, to die to something, and it's causing problems in your life? Just ask yourself this question. When I stand before Christ face to face, how much will I care about this? If you won't care about it then, then it's probably not worth caring about now if it's going to cost you a relationship or joy? Are you concerned that if you die to something in your life that you don't know what's going to happen, maybe you'll be destitute? Remember the promise of 2 Corinthians 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. The more you die to yourself, the more you will experience His grace and His power. So to live as Christ means to live empowered by Him. To live as Christ is to know your goal. You live for His glory. To live as Christ is to to know your motivation to be controlled by His love. To live as Christ is to know your identity that you are defined by him and to live as Christ is to know your power that you are empowered by him. Next week we'll lay down the last three foundation stones of life in Christ. Let's pray.
our Lord, as we meditate on these truths, we feel a great sense of joy that these things are available to us. These are not things we have to strive for, work for, or earn. These are things that are already true because of what you have done on our behalf. And so may we look to you. May we not look to the world, but follow hard after you, die to ourselves and our desires, and may we find in you all that you have promised to us so that Christ be exalted in our life, whether by life or by death. For his sake, we pray. Amen.